Brenda, welcome to Mind Matters. Very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, and let let me say, as as well as Richard, I know you feel the same way, just offer our deepest condolences uh, to you uh, for the loss of your son as a fellow suicide loss survivor. Um, it's different when you lose a spouse, but it's a, a club that none of us want to be in, is it? No, the loss is significant, and it doesn't matter if it's a spouse or a child or aunt or uncle, sibling. It's painful. It's very painful. Right. So as we were talking uh, before the show started, uh, Richard was mentioning, you know, many people have had an experience with a suicide loss, someone that they love who has died by suicide. And even me and Richard, I don't know if you know this, but my brother-in-law took his life right down the street uh, from where we live uh, Hmm. in a park. Uh, Let's see. It's been... 39 years ago. Wow. So my son was, had just been born and uh, he was six months old. And so we had gone through that loss. And uh, so now my, my sister-in-law, God bless her, lost, you know, her first husband and a brother who she was very, very close to. So, uh, well, there's no bars, right? It doesn't. It's an equal opportunity killer. Mm -hmm. It doesn't care what, um, how much money you have, what skin color, um, it doesn't, n- none of it, what religion, sexual orientation, it doesn't matter. So just for our listeners, uh, we're going to be talking uh, today to Linda Pacha about her book, Saving Ourselves from Suicide. Uh, they've just finished recording an audio of this, and so we'll give Linda time at the end of our interview to uh, give you all the details. But for now, Linda, could you start us out by telling us a little bit, bit about your son, Nick, and his story? I'll tell you um, a little bit of the end, and then we'll start at the beginning. Um, we lost our son, Nick, to suicide in 2013. So nine years ago, he was a freshman at the University of Minnesota. He was enrolled in the business school there. And it was just two weeks before the end of that first year of being away from home when we lost him. Um, and it was absolutely devastating because we did not know he was suicidal. And I would say that his story starts really from the time he was in grade school. Nick, um, he had um, he had a very high IQ. His kindergarten teacher asked us to go get it tested because he was asking questions before Google. (laughs) We couldn't answer a lot of the questions. Um, And he had an intensity about himself where for his interests. He first it was cars and trucks and then it was buildings and then airplanes. And he looked like a little Harry Potter, very polite. Parents loved him because he was so polite and so almost animated. But kids his own age had a difficult time relating to him because of his interests and because of the intensity he had for his interests, which we later will have learned uh, or we figure had to do with the fact that maybe he was um, uh, a high-functioning Asperger's kid. But we didn't know that at the time. So kids his age did not relate to him very well. Um, they wanted to go play ball. Um, they they wanted to go into parks and run around. And Nick wanted to talk about planes 24-7. So, um, so what started out is a difference in just interests 
the um, it, there was a separation there between him and, and kids, and it grew over time because when those kids were socializing, learning how to socialize, getting into groups, um, getting playdates together, and then later hanging out when they got a little bit older at each other's homes, Nick was not part of that. And that's that. Um, those conversations about those times after school would carry over to the lunch tables at school because Nick was not part of those groups. He didn't have anything to talk about at the lunch tables. Lunch time was the, one of the most difficult times for him because he, he, he felt very much alone. And so this is what happened in, in grade school. And I think this is very common for a lot of kids who are, um, that have a difference of any sort, whether it be an intellectual difference, if, whether it be that they just moved into a neighborhood, whether their families are different or somehow they feel different, even if they're not, if they perceive themselves as feeling different, then they have a hard time fitting in. Um, and so in, in grade school, what started out as just a difference in interest grew and magnified. And when by the time he got into middle school, he was never bullied um, physically, but he started getting bullied by about, I would say, three or four young men, uh, young boys. How and, so? How so? What did that look like? Verbal, well, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't physical, but he'd come back into the car because I'd you know, drive to pick him up every day. And he would tell myself and his sister, who was two years younger, that they would they would make fun of him. They would they would pick on him. They would call him names. So it was that sort of thing. And, you know, as a parent, it breaks your heart, but you can't go into school each time and stand by the lockers and protect your kid. You know, like you just have to build them up at home and and try to tell them how wonderful they are. And and they go back the next day and they get treated that way. So it was very difficult as a parent to, to watch that unfold. How did he seem to to be with that, uh, Linda? Did he seem depressed at all in those years by it, or did he yeah, seem to was, take it? Yeah, not not like clinical depression. I wouldn't call that. But he was sad as a kid. He okay. always wanted a best friend. He always wanted um, a group to hang with, or at least uh, one boy to come over and and just you know have a best friend. Mm. Um, and so this continued then um, to high school because a lot of the kids that were in middle school went on to high school, the same high school. And I think once you're labeled as an outsider, it's hard to shake that off. Absolutely. So I would tell him, I, I was in band when I was in high school and I said, oh, I just kept on talking up the program saying, when you are in band in high school, you'll have a lot of friends and this will be your social group. And so he was really looking forward to high school, thinking that this was his time now to make friends. And he started off, um, it seemed like he was doing well. I mean, he always did well academically. That was never a problem. But same sort of thing started happening where he felt like an outsider. Kids were starting to make fun of him. And um, then junior year in high school, well, let me back up, you know, around sophomore, I don't know if it was freshman, sophomore year when kids started getting phones, Nick got a cell phone. And that was just one more way for him to feel rejected because he would text people. And um, he I can't tell you how many times I'd walk by his room and see him looking down at his phone waiting for responses. And a lot of times he didn't get those. 
And he agonized, do I, do I text again or will I look desperate? Um, And so um, then junior year in high school, he came to me and said, mom, I think I might be gay. And I gave him a big hug and said, Nick, you know, if, if that's what it is, then, you know, we love you no matter what. Um, And then a couple weeks later, and my husband felt the same way. We were, we were very open to that. Um, of course, um, we knew that would be a, a lot of hardship for him, you know, to, to with, with the, everything that goes with that. Um, but we loved our son and we wanted the absolute best for him. And then, um, a couple of weeks later, he came back to us and said, you know what? I don't think I'm gay because I am not attracted to, to, to boys either. And so Nick didn't know where he fit in in life you know from from the time he was a child he didn't know where he fit in in friendship groups and now this was even bigger he didn't know where he fit in in life because he could he would see his friends dating and going on dance to dances and and even though he did do that he went to some dances with girls and stuff he just didn't have that feeling for them and he didn't have a feeling for males either. So it was very confusing for him because he saw other kids liking each other and he didn't understand why he couldn't have those feelings. Sure. So this really bothered him a lot. And um, he never told anybody he was struggling with this at school. But I do think that the kids picked up on it because one day he was in band and two girls yelled across the band, Nick, are you gay? And Nick said, no. No. Because he didn't know if he was, right? He was questioning it. He didn't know. And they yelled, we find that hard to believe. And then they started laughing. And then some other band members started laughing at him. And it was just devastating for him. It was awful. Well, some of this, too, with the undiagnosed Asperger's, it's it's very, I mean, had you guys been able to get a diagnosis for that, some of these things would have made sense. Uh, in terms of the blunted affect and, you know, the, it's difficult oftentimes to put words to feelings, to connect with people, you know, in a deeper intimate level. And so you all just didn't know. Right. Rita, we, we never even heard of Asperger's. Right. And, um, you know, we're at school, you would have hoped that a teacher or somebody would have mentioned that to us. Nothing. Um, And then there were other bullying things and mean things said to Nick. One day he was whipping back and forth with a, um, a young gentleman, uh, a class, a classmate. And he said to Nick, why don't you go kill yourself? And Nick was so upset by that. And now in hindsight, if Nick was even contemplating or had thoughts, can you imagine what he must've thought to have one of his peers tell him to go ahead and do it. So this was very, very difficult for Nick. Um, Around junior year, around this whole time when he was questioning and this was happening, he gave away a bunch of clothes. And um, I went into his closet to hang up some laundry and just dropped my jaw. Yeah, I just looked around and saw knickknacks gone from his room and it must have been done suddenly. And I didn't know the warning signs and the risk factors for suicide, which is a big thing that we all should know. 
Um, and now I know that we all need to know that. But I did know that giving away possessions could be a warning sign. So we, my husband and I, right away, we asked Nick, like, what, what's going on? What is, um, why did you give away so many clothes? And he said, well, I give away clothes every year to Goodwill, um, you know, a couple times a year. But he did this on his own and he didn't just like leave bags for me where we would, you know, a couple times a year do that. Um, and he said, Mom, you know, I have so much and there are so many people out there that are hurting for things. I just feel like I have I'm, I have too much and I wanted to give. And if you would have known Nick's personality his disposition, this almost would make sense because he was like, I mean, every kid, every parent thinks their child is lovely, right? But he really was almost eerily nice, so nice and so kind and giving that, that we used to call him St. Nick because he would, oh, this is the type of boy that he was. So we said, okay, Nick, all right, that's great that you have a generous heart, but we have to be safe. And we, that's when we took him to two psychologists. We thought we'd get a first and a second opinion. So that's immediately what we did. Um, both of them thought he was not suicidal. Uh, one of them thought he was the highest functioning Asperger's kid he had ever talked with. So that's the first time you ever heard of Asperger's? First, first time we ever heard of it. And so exact, that's exactly what we were like, wait, what's Asperger's? And we read up on it. We bought, you know, we, we, we um, studied and we, once we learned what some of those symptoms were, we thought, yeah, you know, this sounds right on target. And so what was the psychiatrist's recommendation along with that diagnosis? He was just going to, we didn't even get to that point because Nick went, I think, one or two more times. And he was so adamant that he didn't need counseling. Nick was like, I'm okay. I'm fine. They both said I'm not suicidal. I told you I'm not. That he came up with the most clever way of, for us never to send him back. He said he thought that the that the psychologist was hitting on him during a session. And I mean, we didn't think that that was happening. We had checked out this guy beforehand, but we couldn't send him back. He was a minor behind closed doors. No parent would take that chance. And Nick was not a manipulative kid. He was not a kid who lied. So we that's how desperate he was that he didn't want to go see a psychologist. So we said, okay, Nick, you don't want to see him. We understand that, but pick somebody else or we'll pick somebody else. He fought us, Rita, tooth and nail. I don't need him. I don't need it. I'm telling you, I'm fine. My grades are fine. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, they told you, not one, but two psychologists told you I'm not suicidal. And so we just said, okay, all right. Um, and we... Um, so they didn't even diagnose him with depression. Nothing. Didn't say anything about with the Asperger's maybe helping him learn, you know, no. the social cue. Nothing. 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 And so it was just, you know, really, I don't even think it was a full year then between that, that point in time when he stopped and when he went away to school. And, um, boy, I mean, in hindsight, right, you wish, I wish that we would have, you can't force somebody to get counseling if they don't want to. I mean, it's like an alcoholic who doesn't want to get help. You have to have the person 
want the help, right? Exactly. What I wish is parents, we would have strongly encouraged him. And we, we did. I mean, we did. But you can't drag him to, to counseling. You can't drag him. And it, that, that was something that was, that was, um, it's painful to think about, you know, that if he would have had the counseling for that year before going away to school, maybe he would have had enough tools in his toolbox to then cope with things that happen in college. Yeah, sure. Because, you know, half of the healing process in counseling is a therapeutic relationship. Right. And if he could have found someone that he could have really, you know, felt a connection to, that person probably could have helped him, you know, but and he would have he would have really appreciated the help, I would imagine, right? Right. Instead of it being a thing that your parents are making you, know, you do. Making you do. Right, exactly. Um, so he went then um, in the, the fall. He was all excited to go away to college. And um, he thought, okay. I think in hindsight, I think he was thinking, this is my last shot at making friends, right? If, if, and uh, um, he started his freshman year. And uh, he was paired through university housing with a roommate that smoked pot and played computer games. He, he was a big gamer. And Nick was, he thought homemade pizza was junk food. You know what I mean? Like, he'd been unhealthy. So he, he was not ever going to fit into that group. And he didn't, um, he did not do computer games or anything like that. So the, the, the boys that were living in the adjacent rooms um, on his floor hung out in his room with the roommate and they were gamers and they all would smoke pot pretty much daily and and into the wee hours of the morning every single night. And Nick had eight o'clock in the morning, um, 8 a.m. business classes. And so he wanted to get to bed at a reasonable hour for those classes. And it was stressful for him because once again, he was an outsider. And he had once told me, he said, mom, they come in and they ask the roommate to go to, to the cafeteria to grab a meal or to go to do this or that. He said, you would think one time one of those guys would turn to me and just say, hey, Nick, do you want to go with? So once again, Rita, he was an outsider and he wasn't fitting into the group. Um, and this was very stressful for him. He wasn't sleeping right because even though he was trying to wear earplugs and um, a even like a, a mask over his eyes, like a sleep mask, he was, they would be up to the wee hours of the morning gaming in his room. And then they would sleep because they had later classes, but Nick had to get up at eight. Mm. So this was, you know, yourself, if you don't get sleep for even like four or five days. Uh, well, at our age, it's, it's, it's really hard, <laughs> but even when we were younger, it, it's hard. Right. And so for him not to get sleep, for like a whole almost school year, it really, really wore on him. Um, and he wanted to, um, he was hanging out with um, a group um, off campus that we thought was part of the, um, the we thought it was a, a building that was part of the university and it was owned by somebody that had a child or, or a, um, a young a young um, gentleman who was a student at the university. So the father owned it and the son was gay. And I think that he was upset that his son was gay. And so he had implemented rules at this private residence. And this is where Nick was hanging out, trying to make friends because he thought maybe he could live there his sophomore year. 
And the rules that they had there was, was that um, everybody had to tell, they were all assigned a, um, a sponsor or a counselor there. And it wasn't a mental health professional. It was just somebody that was older and they had to tell them everything. And any time that they would have any sort of feelings towards the opposite sex or for anybody, even the same sex or opposite sex, then they had to tell their sponsor to be sort of talked off those feelings. And Nick was like, mom, this is so wrong. First of all, when you make a friendship, then over time you you reveal, you know, things about you, you share, you know, I mean, that that's part of a relationship. This is so unnatural. And this is so wrong to do this, um, you know, and to have sponsors. And my husband and I, when he came home for for break for Christmas break, we were like, what is going on there? What? And we later learned that it was this was a private residence um, that was right across the street from one of the churches on campus. So we thought it was part of the university, you know, that it was one of those off campus buildings um, or. Well, part of part of what, you know, I noticed in your story and and certainly as you're telling it was I don't know if you've ever uh, read a book by Dr. Thomas Joyner called Why People Die by Suicide. Okay, he's one of the top suicidologists in the in the country. And his model suggests uh, a couple reasons why people become suicidal. And one of them is um, this perceived sense of burdensomeness and a thwarted sense of belonging. And that was kind of a theme throughout Nick's life, even from when he was young. And so that is a big driver. And it sounds like even his college experience, you know, so take us up to he was bullied in college he was i mean yes. he certainly didn't make any friends and so that's kind of what and he was righteous he 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 thought okay this was wrong what was going on at this house and then he would try to go to like a frat party um to see if he wanted to join a fraternity and he called home and he'd say mom these guys are like talking about how they're going to try to get girls up in the upstairs, you know, bedrooms of the, he's like, this is so wrong. This is, and Nick was very righteous. He was a good kid. So he, he was very upset. He was like flustered by this. So he didn't fit in there. Um, and, and so he had a small group of friends and, um, I give an example in my book of, uh, one day, um, he, he was with this group and he was one of two boys named Nick. And a girl in the group said, oh, who said that? Was it awkward Nick or cool Nick? And Nick knew he was the awkward Nick. So it was just this hurt over hurt and not fitting in. And then um, the boys on his floor kind of all hanging out in his room and he does he didn't feel part of that. And then he called home. This was two weeks before the end of the school year and said, Mom, I'm having the worst weekend of my life. And I said, oh, you know, like, what's going on? What's going on? And he said that there was a rumor being spread by somebody that um, on the floor that uh, that he was gay. And he said, Mom, how could they do that when I don't even know what, what I am? And he was so upset. I flew to be by his side. Yeah, I remember. Um, I just you know, dropped everything and got there that evening. And we talked about it that whole this was his final weekend of his life. We talked about everything and uh, we talked about the rumor and his feelings about it. And I tried to almost 
you know, I try to lay low on campus because I didn't want whoever was making fun of him. I didn't want him them to know that his mother came to be there. I was staying in a hotel on campus and, and we were going to stay there. We were going to um, to have the room for the full two weeks so that he could get off the floor where he was getting bullied and he could stay with me, study for his finals in peace. And then we would fly home together and then drive back to get his stuff. That was the plan. Um, and, uh, I was there because just, um, that, uh, Nick had just recently had told me that he was depressed and was trying his, that was like the first time in his life that he ever said that he was depressed. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you still didn't think he was suicidal. I did not. I did not because I said to him, Nick, this is before I got there. I said, Nick, how bad is it? And uh, I said, go to the health clinic on campus. If you, if you know, it's bad. And he says, oh, no, mom, it's nothing like that. You know, I don't want to worry you. I'll be home in two weeks. So the fact that he said that to me, it threw me off the set to even think anything like suicide. I just I thought we were a close knit family. We we shared things together. We were very open that if he was having those thoughts, he would have told me.